Hey, everyone. Welcome to Season 2 of Expiration Date. I'm Michelle. And I'm David. Today, we're going to dive straight into the content for our second season, which is about the military-industrial complex. If you haven't had a chance to listen to Season 1, go ahead and take a listen. It's all about the prison-industrial complex. And we're going to try to get back to our roots in this episode, where we have a brief history and some brief discussion of uh, current events. I have struggled with a way to write this season. I have several episodes planned where we're going to take a deep dive into the CIA, the tactics of American imperialism, what we do with our soldiers, the continued use of the corporate media to sanitize American warfare, but I really struggled with where to start. So it was actually quite helpful when Russia invaded Ukraine. I mean, helpful for the podcast, bad for the world. This has led to me having conversations with people in real life and on the internet, um, and as someone who is currently reading everything I can find on American imperialism, I felt like watching the actions of Russia felt very familiar to me. Oh, no. And when I tried to discuss this with people, I got really strong emotional reactions that I was not expecting. From certain people? From pretty much everybody. I think since the pandemic, it's been hard for me. And since becoming a stay-at-home mom, I was never very socially gifted anyway. Mm-hmm. But just to... just It was just so unexpected to me. Like, I would say things like, you know, this really puts imperialism on blast and we can see it, you know, and it, and people would get very emotional. Yeah. I think people are emotionally tied to this. It doesn't surprise me that you got weird feelings because I think we're not looking at it with a rational mind. <laughs> we're looking at it more emotionally. We're reacting more than thinking it through. Well, and it really helped me solidify where I was going to start with this. The emotional responses that I got from people have really helped me make a decision on how to introduce this topic to you. I'm going to give a brief history and current status of where the military-industrial complex stands today, and I want to talk about three major wars that seem to hold the most ideological sway, especially with white people, in America. We're going to discuss the Vietnam War, the war in Afghanistan, and the war in Iraq. I want you to keep an open mind. If you find yourself having an emotional response to what I'm saying, try to remember that our feelings do not change history. If I say something that isn't widely accepted as historical fact, I will tell you, and I will tell you the arguments that people make on both sides. I'll tell you where I get the information and where you can read it for yourself. And keep in mind, Michelle is the one who does a lot of the research, and I'm the one who gets to kind of come in as your average listener and interact with this as well. So This, this is David saying, I'm not responsible for what <laughs> she's about to say. <laughs> I'm not seen. <laughs> Or approved. Yeah, just for a disclaimer, David has not approved any of this. He has no idea what I'm going to say, so don't hold him responsible. But I'm in it. Let's do it. (laughs) First, I want to give a brief history of the American military. In 1776, the colony of the United States declared its independence from Britain, and in the immortal words of Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men were created equal that they are endowed with, by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I really wish he would have meant them. These words were meant for one demographic and one demographic alone. White landowners. White, wealthy males. 
These wealthy men built the American empire on this principle. To separate white, wealthy businessmen from political power in the early parts of our history of the military is a mistake. The U.S. military, from its inception, has served the will of the elite. I heard a quote in one of the podcasts that I listened to, and for the life of me, I cannot find where I heard it. So if this sounds familiar to you, let me know, and I will try to credit the person that that said it originally. But do you remember in the first season where I said that the order of police had its roots in slave-catching posses? Well, the American military has its roots in the slaughter of the indigenous people of America. In the years after the American Revolution, the lives of Indians, I use this term only to stay consistent with source material, and slaves got worse. They had very little protection from Britain, but the very little protection that they had was now gone. The United States military helped push white settlers and all that came with that across the country to rule coast to coast. In the next few hundred years, the military made sure that the dream of manifest destiny came true. We stole land, slaughtered people, broke our own laws, broke our own treaties, and made war to get every last square inch of this resource-rich country. They did not do it nicely. It was against indigenous peoples that we first used biological and germ warfare when we deliberately gave them contaminated blankets. Or when we deliberately slaughtered almost a thousand Appaloosas, which are a special kind of horse bred by indigenous people for stealth, speed, and sure-footedness and camouflage that made the riders a threat to the cavalry. Or when we first started to march people to encampments and leave them to die of exposure or worse on barren land. This is where we start. The pain that the American war machine caused indigenous people does not stop at our borders, but has spread throughout the world. Isn't that interesting? They bred horses specifically to blend in with the terrain, and they were unbelievably good at it. Mm-hmm. And the, instead of, and even like, why didn't we just confiscate them? Like, why did we have to kill them? Like, well, it sends I mean, a message when you kill them. Yeah, uh, like, that, that's, that's, that's it, it. Especially if it doesn't mesh with your method of warfare. And so when you kill something that someone loves and someone works hard for and someone discerned, it says that I more than own you. Like I, mm-hmm. I have power over you. Well, especially something like the horse that settlers had, that colonists had originally introduced to the Americas anyway, and then Native Americans turned that around to become something that was part of their own history, and it's just, it's sad. But there's some really, that we really don't have time to get into, there's really cool stories about how basically these horses were like, I mean, it would be like if World War II planes were going up against stealth jets. I want to read a quote by the Palestinian poet and activist Ghassan Khalifani. Imperialism has laid its body over the world, the head in East Asia, the heart in the Middle East, its arteries reaching Africa and Latin America. Wherever you strike it, you damage it. You serve the world revolution. I hope that the information that you learned this season gives you some striking ability. I hope that you can change some thoughts and opinions that you may have. Because the only way I can see out of this is if the people of this place stand up and say no more. We're going to briefly discuss what got us into the Vietnam War and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Because the most common reason 
I got in response to my comparison of United States to Russia was, well, when America goes to war, we have a reason to be there. We are the good guys. Some things to note about what I'm going to talk about in this episode. We're going to go with post-World War II foreign policy, which is quite different. And the way that our empire shifted is an important history that we're going to get into in a different time. So first, we're going to talk about Vietnam. I call this the Han shot first problem. You know, in Star Wars, when they're like, they did the, they edited the movie where Han didn't shoot first when they were in that restaurant, Han Solo. Oh, no, I didn't realize that. It's a, it's a hotly debated topic amongst Star Wars fans. Whether he did or not. So when they came back out with it, whether he shot first or not, I thought he shot first under the table. I, so I think in the originals, he shot first under the table. Because he's a crook. Yeah. Because he's a swin, he's a, he's a smuggler, which is also apt comparison to what I'm getting at. What is the guy's name? It starts with a G. I can't remember. And he, anyway, they edited it to where he shot first. Mm-hmm. And so everybody got really upset because they're like, Han shot first. Okay. Hmm. Anyway, that is. So really back to Vietnam and the Han, <laughs> the Han War. Vietnam, I call it Han shot first as a joke. It's just Han a, shot first. It's, gotcha. The United States justified its full scale invasion of Vietnam generically to stop the march of communism based on the Gulf of Tonkin incident. At the time, the American press faithfully printed the party line. The USS destroyer Maddox was in international waters doing patrol when a northern Vietnamese ship attacked it on August 2nd, 1964. A few days later, another destroyer joined the Maddox in international waters. They were on patrol and again were attacked by northern Vietnamese. This is the reason that the U.S. went to war. This is still what most Americans that know anything about Vietnam believe. And the reality is, is that they lied. The U.S. government and military leaders lied. In the decades since, it has quietly been released that this was all a lie. Not only was the Maddox in northern Vietnamese waters when they were approached on August 2nd, but they were there to spy. They were trying to intercept communications, and they got caught. Then, when they approached, the USS Maddox fired first. They shot at the northern Vietnamese first, killing several people. There were no American casualties. The northern Vietnamese did shoot back, but they injured no one. The second, quote-unquote, attack never actually happened. The two American ships got confused and just started firing, kicking off one of the most devastating campaigns in history. Thousands of American soldiers and millions of Vietnamese were maimed or killed based on this lie. The most powerful military on earth attacked a peasant nation to put down a popular revolution because we disagreed with their economic policy. We had the audacity to also lose this war and then paint ourselves as the victim. The bombs we dropped and the chemicals we spilled and the rice we burned still to this day kill and maim hundreds of people per year, mainly children. We will get more into the consequences of this particular war in a different episode. Tell me some sources on that. Just, you know, in case we have someone who's not going to go through and read the sources, like... I think I put the link into the State Department's website. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, this is not... The Gulf of Tonkin incident was faked, and they have come out and said that. They really? admitted it, yeah. And even McNamara, I think, was the war secretary then. I mean, he wrote a whole book about it. Okay. It was basically like, yeah, we made a mistake, but... And I really regret that a lot of Americans died because of that mistake. It's like, what about the Vietnamese? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he didn't express any kind of remorse for remorse that, yeah. for that he did they did end up a lot of them did end up that's why i've said that part about painting themselves as the victim 
because we love stories about the deeply wounded and flawed Vietnam soldier. Right. Um, we love that tale. I'm not saying that it didn't, that doesn't happen because it very much did, but we love that story. We love stories about how like born on the 4th of July and all that kind of stuff, how they come home and, you know, regret their actions in the war, mm-hmm. but it's still key. It's still very American centric. Uh, yeah. Does that make sense? Right. Cause there's an agenda. There's yeah, an American agenda yeah. for that. Yeah. And like, we're going to get into this later in the episode, but how consistently, especially during the Vietnam war, since it really was one of the first to be televised, that was really kind of the Vietnam era thing um, that really changed the way warfare is done. We have a lot of pictures from war crimes that we covered up that have come out hmm. in later decades, like the My Lai massacre um, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, they have pictures of it, of what we did. And it is, I mean. Is it chilling? It is. It's, I mean, it's the worst things that humans can do to each other. There's, oh, wow. there's nothing. I mean, in having, so painting in your head when you see things where like America is always portrayed as the good guys or thank God the Americans are here, like other places. The liberators. Pla- yeah, the liberators. Other places the heroes, do not. Yeah. The ones who rise above and are better than everyone else in both manpower, arms, and ethics is not necessarily true. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Later in the season, we are going to do an episode about some good that has come out of this. The reason I have an episode on it is because I can pretty much sum up all of it in like a 20 minute episode. Hmm. So it's not, not good, but hmm. yeah. And so this, yeah, like I said, this one, this one is not one that historians would even blink at. This is, this is widely accepted fact okay. that it was all fake. Now we're going to talk about the war in Afghanistan. If you are old enough, I want you to try to think back to September 11th. I want you to remember the mood that was sweeping the country, the anger, the resentment, Islamophobia, the racism that held our people in thrall. So, David, Mm -hmm. late 2001, what do you remember thinking about Afghanistan? About Afghanistan? Wow. I remember this sense of pride in the United States for the rally, and they came in the wake of, of September 11th. And, I mean, I remember that there was this general fear and anger and and it can be depicted in a cartoon that I saw where it was uh, an eagle that was sitting down sharpening its talons right Mm. getting ready to retaliate for this so Mm -hmm. I would say the sentiment towards Afghanistan at that point once we kind of figured out where things were centered was not Mm -hmm. not very pleasant not very affectionate at all 2001 I was 15 I think 14 15 and I remember, I, I think I actually remember seeing that cartoon that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I remember just saying, I just remember seeing, and I was not political at the time at all. I was very far removed from politics. And I remember thinking, well, they really shouldn't have attacked us if they mm-hmm. didn't want this. And so I really feel like that that, a lot of that was manufactured through our media. And I use the word manufactured for a very specific reason, because I believe that it was if you had to guess, mm-hmm. how many of the people involved in 9-11 mm-hmm. that planned it and carried out the attacks were from Afghanistan or Iraq? I thought they were from Saudi Arabia. They're all from all from Saudi Arabia. Isn't that one of our biggest allies? Yeah. I really feel like that they kind of told us that Afghanistan was also a stronghold of Al-Qaeda mm-hmm. and that that's where Osama bin Laden was hiding out. Right. And I feel like that's what they used to justify invading that country. 
Yeah, but Osama bin Laden was Saudi. Yes, he was Saudi Arabian. But he was from, but he was in Afghanistan, is that what you're saying? He was in Afghanistan for a time. And that was the reason, that was the main reason that we used to invade was to, because it was an Al-Qaeda stronghold and Al-Qaeda attacked us. So you think that's the intel they had when they went into Afghanistan? No, well, yes. This one's actually a little bit different than the war in Afghanistan, or the war in Afghanistan is a little bit different than Vietnam and Mm -hmm. Iraq, because it really wasn't an outright lie. It was more an omission of a bunch of very important facts that we're going to talk about. So in late 2001, we attacked the Al-Qaeda stronghold, quote unquote, of Afghanistan. The media led us to believe that we were going in to capture Osama bin Laden, the greatest threat to mankind ever to live. Our tanks rolled in. What if I told you that the people who attacked on September 11th were not from Afghanistan or Iraq, they were from Saudi Arabia and Egypt, two of our allies. The reason that Osama bin Laden was in Afghanistan and had protection was because he was a former CIA asset and billionaire. I had heard that. And that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were both part of the Mujahideen, a far-right extremist group that the U.S. funded and armed to combat the Russians in the 80s. And it kind of makes sense if you're going to have someone attack the United States that they would have passports or links to countries that are allies, right? They mm-hmm. wouldn't be as scrutinized as those from, you know, Afghanistan where there is there is and was Russian influence and stronghold. Yeah. I remember when I learned the information, and this was probably over a decade ago, that none of the 9-11 attackers were even from Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, well, what? why did we go there? And another thing that I feel like that was mm-hmm. left out um, of the whole narrative, um, and again, the media printed this, pretty uncritically, is that we were going in to get Osama bin Laden. And I feel like one thing that they omitted, the powers that be in Afghanistan tried to give us Osama bin Laden Mm -hmm. before we invaded. Hmm. They tried to, they had him in custody and they were ready to trade him for peace talks. And we, George Bush quoted famously Ronald Reagan's, we don't negotiate with terrorists and then invaded. Since the war, It has come out that most of the reasons for invading were absolutely not true. I've linked articles on what's called the Afghanistan Papers, which are several documents that have been leaked and interviews that have been done in the decades since, decades since, that detail all of this, and I'll link it in the show notes. One thing I want you to consider also about Afghanistan to remember for season three, do you honestly think it is a coincidence that the uniquely American opioid crisis coincided with our invasion and exploitation of the best place on earth to grow poppies. Interesting. The war in Iraq. Okay, David, what do you remember about the war in Iraq? Now we're going to jump forward to March 2003. I do remember it was March. I remember where I was sitting when they started doing the shock and awe. And I remember it was under the guise of weapons of mass destruction that Mm -hmm. posed a, a serious threat to our soldiers and our homeland based on our war on terrorism. That is actually we have a very good memory because yeah. I'm going to quote George Bush's speech and that's pretty much word for word what yeah. he said. <laughs> Bush said this to the world just days before we invaded Iraq. Intelligence gathered by this and other governments leave no doubt that the Iraq regime continues to possess and conceal some of the most lethal weapons ever devised. This regime has already used weapons of mass destruction against Iraq's neighbor and against Iraq's people. There is a podcast called Blowback 
that the first season goes into great detail about the blunders and lies that led to the invasion of Iraq. And I really recommend listening to it. I've listened to it. It's absolutely fantastic. It is now probably more widely known than the other two that we have discussed that they lied. Bush lied. Colin Powell lied. Dick Cheney lied. Joe Biden lied. They showed doctored photos and lied about intelligence. There were never any weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We knew what weapons were in Iraq because we were the ones that sold them to them. Hmm. Why do you ask? Why did they lie? Because they can't tell the truth. As Butler said that we quoted in our Final episode of season one, war is a racket. It always has been. The U.S. military is an arm for the elite to make business dealings in other places to benefit them. It's really that simple. I think if you try to place anything other than greed at the heart of this, you're making a mistake, especially since World War II. Plus, the U.S. has huge weapons companies that need to move product, so they continue to lie to the populace, mainly about their continued war crimes and civilian deaths, and every U.S. president in modern history fits the definition of a war criminal. Do you have any issues with anything I've said so far? I wonder what the definition of a war criminal is. Someone who commits war crimes, as laid out by the Geneva <laughs> Convention, which every president has, has done. Yeah. And like, I don't say it to be dramatic, like, oh my God, Bush is a war criminal. Mm. It's like, no, he's actually a war criminal. Yeah. They knew that they were war criminals and they put out legislation in order to cover them cover them, in case they ever got tried. Well, if what you're saying is true, these guys are war criminals, why doesn't the world stop them? And the only question I would ask you is how. We veto things that come through the UN all the time. We have basically cut any ability that they have to punish the United States. In 2002, before his invasion of Iraq, Bush passed a law that allows for the invasion of Holland if they ever try to try any American citizens at The Hague, which is houses the international criminal courts and where they do international war criminal trials, if any American is put on trial there, we can invade Holland. We have executive order? Yeah. <laughs> and so, I well, I shouldn't say, I don't know if it was an executive order. It might have been passed through. You said it was through. passed through Congress? It might have been so passed through Congress. More than executive order? Yeah, it's a, and so we can, we can literally invade Holland if they ever try to which means that we can do it without having to get congressional approval again, if, if, if what you're saying is correct. So the current situation is the president can, through executive order, wield the military as needed for 90 days, and after that it takes a vote of Congress. Mm -hmm. But if there's something precedent that says, if they do this, we can do that, then, you know, that's like a seed planted for later. Yeah. So watch out, Holland... The U.S. military has built the richest empire in human history. We spend more on our military per year than the next 10 nations combined. A large portion of taxes paid by U.S. citizens go to the military budget. The military is the number one contributor to climate change on the earth. Hmm. We export more weapons than anywhere else on earth. It's actually one of the few things we still make at home. From How to Hide an Empire... Britain and France have 13 bases between them. Russia has nine military bases. All in all, there are around 30 non-U.S. military bases worldwide. The U.S. has well over 800. We are in almost every country, and we have gone to war over our military bases being attacked. Looking at you, Pearl Harbor. We are the only nation to ever use nuclear weapons in war, yeah. and we have also used them for experimentation on our own people and on small island nations. 
that are no longer there. Yeah. There's actually a huge Marshallese population in Northwest Northwest Arkansas, Arkansas. where I'm from. And I remember asking one of my teachers, I was like, well, what brought these people here? Why are there so many of them? And she was like, they only come here to get free health care. And I was like, oh, that stinks. Why do they get free health care? And I remember thinking as a kid, like, that's weird that we would just do that. That's so nice of us. (laughs) It's not. It's because we nuked them. (laughs) There's a really great book, too, that was... um, written about the Damascus incident and Damascus is here in Arkansas where there's almost a nuclear explosion because we had the biggest nuclear warhead ever in a, a silo here oh, in Damascus and I'd it like exploded. It. Uh, but it also, it's called command and control and it's written by Eric Schlosser and, but it also tells the, the history of the nuclear weapons and how, it came about talks all about this, which exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. It's a very good book. It tells it tells you why the internet was created so that they can command and control nuclear weapons throughout the world. Is that real? Yeah. I had see, I'd heard that on a podcast and I was like, Oh man, this is a New York times writer who did a lot. He won a lot of awards for the book too. So I need to read very that. Good. Yeah. I need to read that. Um, and we are going to do a book list later that we're going to talk about. The United States has a pattern of using lies propaganda and the ignorance of its people to exploit nation after nation after nation. The three wars that we discussed today are only a small part of our military history. If you see what is happening in the Ukraine and think this is evil, that a nuclear world power would send young impoverished 18 year olds to kill other poor people, that a nation would invade based on flimsy propaganda, deliberately target infrastructure, and add no value to the lives of the citizens of that country, or really the mass majority of its people. Arrest protesters, assassinate political rivals, and use the police as an occupying force to control its people? If you can see this in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, but you ignore it here, have we got a show for you. So now we're going to move along to talking about more in detail about the war in Ukraine. There is one question that I want you to ask yourself is how do you feel when you see the horrors of what Russia is doing played out in the media? I want you to ask yourself, what makes you so sympathetic to these people? And I want you to be honest with yourself. I want you to think about that while I'm playing a clip, um, uh, some clips from news uh, compiled by the TikToker Anthony McPherson. These clips are from the BBC, CBS News, and NBC News. Developing third world nation. This is Europe. It's very emotional for me because I see European people with blue eyes and blonde hair being killed. Children being killed every day with Putin's missiles. These are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine. And that, quite frankly, is part of it. These are... Um, but this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too. Uh, Altogether, there are about 200 students, Zambian students, trying to get out of Poland. No one's letting them through. They've spent two nights, and this is good. This is, good. This is not a... 
There were some themes in there. That's worth watching to to see his reaction what he says. You can you can click the link. I'll put I'll put it in there. It's a it's a it's a TikTok, but he's he's clipping from news. And I want to like ask you if you guys heard the dog whistles in that where they said these are not this is not Afghanistan or Iraq or Syria. These are civilized people. These are Europeans. These are one guy even said it explicitly. These are blonde-haired, blue-eyed white people. Right. And I have seen, and it, I don't know if it was hard to catch at the very end of the clip, but there were a lot of black people in Ukraine, and they have had a lot of trouble exiting the country in the same way. They are not being treated in the same way that the white refugees are. And I am not saying this because I want the white people to be treated worse. That's not at all my point. I just want you to understand why our media is not having a lot of trouble making you feel for the mm. victims because there are videos just like the ones out of Ukraine of brown people that don't speak your language that are just as gut-wrenching and just as sad but the american people don't really seem to care. Hmm. And again, this is not to get you not to care about Ukraine. I want you to care about Ukraine. I care about Ukraine, but I also care about brown refugees. Or the atrocities that were done to the linger people in China. Exactly. Some of the worst stuff I've ever heard or read about was to them. Mm -hmm. And it, I just think that people are so easily watching this conflict in Ukraine where a bigger nation is coming in and destroying infrastructure, killing people, bombing hospitals, and they can so easily see it as evil because it is. But then when you talk about the American invasion of Iraq, they're like, well, it's apples to oranges. It's a totally different reason. I'm you can't. You can't challenge you a little bit on okay. this. I'm Not happy. that you're wrong, because I think you're right. I'm going to kind of say that I wonder if we can project ourselves onto the Ukraine as a developed white nation. Mm -hmm. And that for and for that reason, we feel we have this more visceral and emotional rea uh, reaction to it. Because mm -hmm. whereas we can't normally see and i'm saying the people that that i hang out with my circle mm -hmm. you know we don't see ourselves my i say my my circle my family we don't see ourselves as developing nation minorities but when it ha hits home when it comes to mm -hmm. blue-eyed blonde-haired white people and i think that is our ingrained white supremacy mm. i think that is the reason that things can go unpunished that hap that America does to nations full of brown people and or people that are not white. I'm going to challenge you again on white supremacy. I, like I said, I don't think you're wrong. I think it would be, I think more aptly would be because white supremacy, I mean, it, it, most people, even people who like myself and other people that realize that would say, no, not white supremacy is not that. But I would say, what is it? Subconscious bias, mm -hmm. maybe nationalism, subconscious nationalism, because mm -hmm. We've fallen in line with what has been told and what we've said. Mm -hmm. And so when we we see this kind of stuff, we, I mean, yeah, that that is the supremacy of what we see. But I don't, I don't think that people would actively say that they're white supremacists as much as it activates their subconscious bias. Mm -hmm. Well, know. and I think it activates your subconscious bias of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Like I think that, because really the only difference in somewhere like other than like historical, it's just different countries. But what we did to Iraq and what Russia is doing or what we've done to countless nations and mm -hmm. what Russia is doing to the Ukraine is not that different. Right. And 
all I'm saying is that I think that a lot, because a lot of the stuff from the war in Iraq, a lot of the stuff from our conflicts in Somalia, Syria, Yemen, all those are on social media and on the news, but they do not elicit the same response, even though it's very similar situations where a large military is invading and terrorizing these people and we don't have the same gut reaction. And I do think that even though it is an internal bias, it is a bias towards white supremacy because that's what we believe. It's a great perspective. You know what I mean? Does that make no, sense? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I went to Vietnam mm -hmm. a few years back. Did I ever tell you about this? No. I went to Vietnam and um, we were in the northern part of Vietnam um, in Hanoi and we went through a couple museums and it was, it was the first time I'd ever seen the United States portrayed as imperialist invaders. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was like this very big paradigm shift to recognize that, oh yeah, we are not saviors to the world. There are a huge group of people that can see us as colonizing invaders. and that Why other don't stuff. the Vietnamese like us? Yeah. And oh, man, and even as, if you get more into church expansion and mission work, you start to see a lot more in a history of that, that colonization and neo-colonialism colonialism mm -hmm. Oof. yeah and it's and i mean there is this is a whole separate season of a podcast but the way that american christianity so especially evangelical christianity so easily meshes with american colonialism is not a coincidence that was manufactured and done very they did a great job they very, did real good very true they did a great job <laughs> and i say that as somebody who was raised as an evangelical Christian, I understand how effective it is at not only erasing, erasing someone's culture, but getting you to be westernized is really the point of evangelical Christianity. Fight me. Maybe we're looking at season four, the evangelical. <laughs> the, that, the evangelical. I, I heard somebody say the evangelical industrial complex yes. the other day, and I was like, "Yeah, season yep. four. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our longest season." Jesus. <laughs> so now that you've heard this, I want you to listen to news stories with a new ear. I want you to listen for those dog whistles, like civilized or European. I really want you to listen for that, and I want you to examine your own internal biases that you may have, where. Why is this affecting you so much? Why do you think it was so easy for you to share the story of the grandmother or that told the Russian soldier to put seeds in his pocket? Or why, why was that so poignant to you? And try to be honest with yourself about that. Because we have been incredibly primed in this country for two reasons. One, to value white supremacy and two, to hate the Russians. And so <laughs> those are, and I'm, please, please do not misunderstand me. I am not one of those people that is a Russian apologist. I think what they're doing is evil and pointless. I do think the United States bears a significant responsibility because of our politics in Ukraine and how we helped lead a coup there 10 years ago and our NATO expansion eastward, but that's a whole different episode. Also, notice that since the Cold War, you have been conditioned to hate Russia, but you must ask yourself honestly if we are any better, if you're a person that supports a regime that jails citizens for protesting, aggressively exploits and invades land that does not belong to them, uses violence and the threat of nuclear war to increase its wealth of the oligarchs and politicians in that country, and romanticizes power, steals resources, and abuses those with less, then you are not a good person. And I am not talking about Russians. 
I'm going to link the sources for the articles and the clips that I used today. But also this season, we have a little bit of a problem because a lot of my sources are books this season. So I'm going to list those books. What's the problem? People can read. Well, people can read, but it is, it's, it's hard to fact check a book because it just takes longer. So I'm going to list those books that we're going to be drawing from this season. This list will grow. How to Hide an Empire by Daniel Emmerwar. Manufacturing Consent by Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky. The End of the Myth by Greg Grandin. Washington Bullets by Vijay Prashad. A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn. Family of Secrets by Russ Baker. The Jakarta Method by Vincent Bevins. And Killing Hope by William Blum. So I think this episode, it'll be safe to say that we're going to challenge some of your preconceived notions on nationalism, on military, and kind of how you, you view the United States. And we invite you to be receptive to that. We invite you to challenge. We invite you to come back with perspectives. However, I mean, as much research as Michelle puts into that, we would hope that you bring that same type of research and knowledge back with the pushback too. Thanks for listening today. If you get a minute, we ask that you rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. It'll help us reach more people. If you like what we're doing and want to help with the research and investigation process, check out our and join our Patreon page. For as little as $5 a month, you can join others and get raw recordings, behind episode notes, and special releases not available to the public. You can find us at patreon.com slash expiration date. You can email us at expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at Expiration Date Podcast. Our theme music is Arrival of the Geese by Chad Crouch, graphic design by Whatever Media. This episode was written by Michelle Swope, edited and produced by David McCormick. Subscribe to the podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, I think no, that, no, no, that's is Holland. Is it Holland? Holland? Yeah. Is that the tulip people? Coming for your fucking flowers. But just the pink ones. Just the pink oh, I like the yellow ones too. Look at the yellow ones. I like the red ones. <laughs> red, white, and blue tulips is what we're going to plant all America. over your face. America. America.